following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. A, a rather unfamiliar passage, and uh, if you read through it like we just did, you probably have no idea what it's talking about, which is why I want to preach on it this morning. Uh, it's a great picture of uh, the suffering servant who will come. Um, and it does depict that for Jesus, uh, it was going to be dark times. It was not going to be easy. And Isaiah prophesies in this and other passages some of the darkness that Jesus would have to walk through in order to redeem us. Um, and um, Jesus did that because he knew it was exactly God's purpose and will. And the reality and truth is that this passage speaks not only about Jesus, but it speaks to us that life will have dark times. Anybody here going through darkness right now? You don't have to raise your hand, right? But uh, being a Christian does not guarantee smooth sailing. It does not guarantee that life will always be easy or comfortable. Uh, Jesus promises that if we follow him, we will be persecuted and life will be difficult. And there will be dark times, whether it's sickness or death of loved ones or, their, or our own impending death or ministry obstacles or financial strains. Uh, life is hard at times. Um, and during these times, I don't know about you, but for me, it is during these times that my faith gets tested, right? It is so easy to trust God in the light. It's so easy to trust God and believe him when everything is going exactly as I want it to. It is not easy to trust God and be confident that you are walking in his will when difficulties come along. And that's, that's part of the deal. And so... Um, this passage will encourage us, I hope, to trust God in dark times. Uh, maybe you're not right now walking in dark times. Maybe right now life is good and you are trusting God with everything because life is good. Um, but the reality is all of us walk in darkness about the future. The future for all of us is dark. I don't, I don't mean by that it's, it's bad, right? Um, it's dark in the sense that it's unknown. And that's one of the things that makes darkness hard is we don't really know what's out there. We don't know uh, in the future how soon tragedy will strike us. We don't know how quickly our life will end. Right? So it's a huge unknown. So for all of us, whether present trials or future, uh, the, the, the future is dark. And it can cause us to, to worry. Right? It's, it's not unusual or unnormal to be apprehensive about the future. We hear news reports or we hear uh, things that predict for us a future that may be less than optimistic. And it can create anxiety and worry and fear. Um, uh, is anybody here afraid of the dark? Uh, not so much. Now, it depends on where the darkness is. Inner city, you know, where there's gangs in the dark, I probably would be more nervous than in, in, in the woods. But um, probably all of us have some sense of fear of darkness. And what, what makes it fearful is the unknown. Well, Isaiah gives us here a great picture of Jesus who walked through incredible darkness. Incredible darkness. And he did it with great faith and confidence. So let's, 
unpack this, this rather complex and con- maybe confusing passage. Um, it's really not confusing, but it's just unfamiliar to us. And see what it tells us about Jesus and how it can encourage us. Um, the, the passage is basically broken into two sections. The first section explains what Jesus would do. And, of course, we know looking back that it's Jesus. They, you know, obviously, the people in Isaiah, they didn't know that. But it does identify this as the suffering servant. Uh, we know looking back, it's clearly speaking about Jesus. Uh, and, and Jesus is upheld here as, in the first section of a, an example, by the way he lived his life. So we'll look at that first, and then we'll look at how Isaiah applies it to our own life. Uh, it starts off, let me read just the uh, verses 4 and 5 again. The Lord God has given me the tongue. So again, it's Jesus speaking. Picture this, the suffering servant. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. First picture you get here of the suffering servant is that he is a diligent student of God's word. He is one who is attentive and tuned into uh, God's words. Uh, he says three times, it's like, like those who are taught. Uh, he says, morning by morning, he wakes me up and wakes up my ears so that I can hear. And thirdly, he says that the Lord God has opened his ears. He's given him a capacity to hear uh, the word of God and to study it and know and understand what it's about. Uh, Jesus was given this capacity and he developed it and he pursued it. And Jesus was a student of the word. And he knew how to hear God's voice through the word. Now, this, this is where we uh, oftentimes really misunderstand what the incarnation is about. What does it mean for Jesus to be incarnated, to be God in human flesh? Well, we know that's true. That's a doctrine that we uphold, that he was fully God, fully man, right? But what does that really mean in terms of how Jesus lived out his life on earth? Well, uh, the way I often visualize it is that he was fully man, but he was fully God, meaning that God downloaded into his brain at birth this whole you know, database of information about what it meant to be God. Right? Uh, but to do that is to really miss the incarnation. Uh, Jesus was fully God. He was fully human. But to be fully human, he had to lay aside a lot of what it meant for him to be divine. That doesn't mean that he stopped being those things, but it meant that he did not have instant, immediate access to those things. Right? Uh, Paul says in Philippians that he emptied himself. Right? So what that means is when Jesus was born as a little baby, one day old, his brain was as blank and as empty as yours and ours was. Right? He was not downloaded with an instant knowledge of who he was. And of course, the, theologians debate this, and there's, you, we, could go, we could have a great discussion about how and when Jesus came to awareness of his deity. Right? Well, uh, I don't have the answer for that, but I, uh, of when. But Isaiah gives us a clue as to how. Right? It was because he was tuned into God's voice that God spoke those two things to, to him. Not unlike God would do that for us. Right? Jesus lived life as a human being just like us, only without sin. Right? His experience on earth was just like ours, only without sin. He was fully human. 
Right? Now, uh, and it's, it's significant in this passage that it says that God opened his ears. Right? He didn't have extra ability to hear God's word that you and I don't as a human being. Right? He wasn't magically connected. He did not have a magic hotline. You know, God did not give him a special cell phone that he could dial up heaven. Right? He uh, heard God and he connected with God and he understood God's purpose and plan and will just like you and I will. Right? By going into God's word and hearing God speak his purpose and plan and character and nature to us through his word. And that's what Jesus did. He said, morning by morning, he woke me up. I can just see this. Jesus gets this wake-up call, 4 o'clock in the morning. And we know this because it records it in the Gospels, right? He would get up before daylight, before everybody else was awake. And he would do what? He would go off into the wilderness and he would pray. And God would bring the word to him. Uh, not a new word, not a special word, but the word of God. And Jesus grew up, and we know that he studied books like Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And he uh, is tuned in, he is aware of passages like this. And uh, you can just picture this as Jesus is a boy growing up, and as God's speaking to him, and how this worked, I don't know, but at some point he's going, I think this is me, right? I think this is me. I think God is calling me to be this suffering servant. And as he walked in obedience, the Father unfolded to him knowledge about who he was and who the Father was and what his plan was for the world. So Jesus was a student. He was a disciple. He was in the Word. um, And he was diligent and serious about it. Uh, But not only that, it says that he uh, he was taught. And because he was taught, because he had a a tongue as one who was taught, that God had given him a special purpose uh, to teach. And it says that he was able to sustain those who were weary. Right? So as Jesus learned, he didn't just keep it to himself. It wasn't for his own private use only. Um, and in fact, uh, we'll see that there were two purposes for what he did with what he learned from God's word. And the first thing was that he became a teacher, he became a rabbi. He became very skilled at giving life-giving words. Um, it, it equipped him with the skill to become a teacher like no other. Uh, and I love, I love what he says there. He says his words were sustaining. Right? Is anybody here weary? Right? Uh, it's early in the morning. You know, the coffee hasn't worn off yet. Give it a little while. Coffee fades. Right? We're weary. You know, life can get weary. Life can get hard. Right? He says he has the words to sustain those who are weary. He can give life. And it speaks not only of his teaching as wisdom, but ultimately it means that, that Jesus' words are life. That in Jesus' teaching as he communicated the gospel and what his mission was about, that his words were life themselves. Right? That we come to life, we come to have eternal life through the words and teaching ministry of Jesus. Uh, Peter understood this, only partially perhaps, but in John 6, Peter says, uh, when, when Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to desert me too? And do you remember what Peter answered? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? You have the words of eternal life. Those are words of sustain. Uh, Jesus knows how to sustain and encourage us, how to give us life through his teaching. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you 
rest. Right? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? Learn from me. Jesus must teach us how to carry his burden. He must teach us the words that give us life to take on his rest. For I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus proclaimed the gospel, and it was through those words that he gave life. And I love in John chapter 15, as Jesus is talking about the, the vine and the branches, kind of randomly, and it seems a bit out of, out, of, out of context, he says these words, he says, you are already clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Right? So Jesus' words are life-giving and his teaching. And so that's why we, we uh, are focused on the gospel. That's why the gospel is so vitally important, because it's the words of Jesus that give life. And Jesus learned those words, and he learned the mission. He learned what it was about from his father, as he himself was a student of the word. So, so that was one purpose. His, his, his word was given to teach us. But not only that, right? Uh, it was also given to instruct him of his own path, right? God spoke his will to Jesus through scripture. And again, I'm sure Jesus poured through books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and other passages that described... Uh, where life was going to go for him, right? And so it warned Jesus that his path was headed for trouble, that he would indeed pass through great darkness. Um, and, and so he says in verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was, I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. Why, was Jesus, why would Jesus be tempted to turn back, right? Why would Jesus be tempted to rebel against the word that he was receiving? Well, because it wasn't exactly good news for him, right? It was a difficult word as it became apparent to him what God the Father was calling him to do, that he was directing him to go to Jerusalem, that he was directing him on that Palm Sunday to descend, and even though the crowds were applauding him, that that applause would quickly die away, and that a very few short days later that same mob would be would be crying out, not Hosanna, but crucify him. And so Jesus became aware of this. And uh, he did not rebel, right? And notice this, it says in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Um. God's word to Jesus was a word of suffering and death. Uh, Isaiah doesn't give a lot of details in this section like he does in Isaiah 53, but he does give great accuracy what would happen to Jesus, how he would be beaten, how he would be shamed and humiliated, how he would be disgraced uh, with his beard being pulled out and his face being beaten and blows to his cheeks. And he would be spit upon. And he would be treated as a criminal. Isaiah paints a very clear picture of that. And and the suffering servant says, I did not hide from that. I I offered my back. I willingly submitted to that kind of suffering and pain and shame. Um, Of course, uh, Isaiah 53 describes it in even more detail. And we know that it wasn't just beating It wasn't just some humiliation. It wasn't just some rejection. We know that ultimately it was the agony of the cross. 
uh, as it says in Isaiah 53, how he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, how he would be stricken and smitten, and get this, not just by men, but I, in 50, Isaiah 53 says, he would be stricken and smitten by God right? and afflicted by God, that he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him the, the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and, and by his stripes we were healed. Right? So that's, that's the word of suffering that God gave to Jesus. He instructed him. And in, in this, Jesus fully submitted to the Father's will and plan. Right? He willingly stepped forward into this horrible season of great darkness. And uh, even the picture on the cross where it says that the sun was blacked out and it truly became literally dark as night as Jesus literally and physically and spiritually uh, came into a season of, of tremendous darkness as he became sin for us. Um, so how could Jesus do this so willingly, right? How is it that Jesus could have such resolve and such commitment to take on such pain and such suffering and even death? Right? Again, the temptation to say, well, God just downloaded that into him ahead of time, right? That he's not like us. That his divinity somehow overrid his humanity so that for him it was easier than it would have been for us. But again, to do that is to miss the point of the incarnation, right? Jesus was instructed these things through the word and through the spirit as he heard God's voice. And as a man, as someone who is tempted in every way like us, he stood with the option and the opportunity to reject God's plan. Right? To say, God, I, I will not go that far. And we know that the idea at least crossed his mind because Jesus prayed at the, in the garden. Right? He said, Father, take this cup from me. Right? It was not easy for Jesus to go to the cross. In his humanity, there was a part of him that held back, that struggled with this step of obedience. But in the end, he says, but not my will, not my will, not what I want in my human flesh, but your will be done. Well, how could he do that? Well, uh, a couple reasons he could do that. One, uh, is it was clear that as he studied the word, that God would be a help to him, right? It would be dark, it would be black, and it would be suffering, but God would walk with him. Notice what it says um, in verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. And I love those words, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. I haven't set my, therefore, I haven't been disgraced. And therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. And then in verse 9 he says it again. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Twice he stands and he affirms and he assures himself that in the midst of all the suffering, God would help that God would be with him each step of the way and God would help him. Um, and, and that God would vindicate him. Uh, he, he had this hope and this promise that the cross was not the last word. 
Right? Say that again. The cross was not the last word. Right? There was another word. What was that word? Well, the word of resurrection, the word of ascension, the word of Jesus being lifted up and exalted. Right? Uh, God vindicated Jesus' death through the resurrection and the ascension. And where he received shame and disgrace and the rejection of men, he found the honor and glory and reception of the Father. Uh, so that, as it says in Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? It's pretty good vindication, right? Uh, to reign supreme over heaven and earth and everything under the earth, and to come to a place so highly exalted that every name, every being, every creature, every living thing through all of time and history will bow before Jesus and proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? Amen? Amen. The cross is not the last word. Right? And Jesus understood that, that there would be a season of darkness. But in the end, the Father would help him, would raise him up, would glorify him, would vindicate him, would clear his name of any wrong. And he says, who would bring an argument against me? Let him stand up and say it to my face. Right? You've got to charge against me. You think I've done something wrong. You think I'm guilty of some sins. Let's stand up before me right now before the judge. You accuse me. Right? And there is silence in the heavens. Right? Because nobody will accuse Jesus in the end. Because he is vindicated by the Father. Um, so Jesus has this amazing confidence knowing that God is with him. But he has an, another confidence uh, because, he is, because he's firm in the, in the fact that this is God's will. Right? Uh, Jesus knew that this is what God had called him to. It was God's plan. And so he could say at the garden, you know, not my will, but your will be done. And I know what your will is, Father. I know what your will is. As he studied the word as God spoke to him, he could carry out God's purpose because he was firmly convinced and determined uh, what it was. Uh, and so he says, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Uh, Luke 9 puts it this way, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, right, to go to the cross, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right? Same, same idea. He was determined. He was resolved to carry out God's will because he knew what it was. He was clear about it. And he was determined that in every way, in every, uh, in every way possible, he would perfectly carry out God's will, knowing that God would be there to help and knowing that it wouldn't end at the cross. Right? Um, that, that kind of ends the first section of, the, of what Isaiah tells here about Jesus. And we could stop there, and it would be a great place to stop and just fall down and worship, right? To, to praise Jesus, that he listened so carefully to the Father and took time to pour into the Scriptures and learn all that he was supposed to do, and that he did it so perfectly. 
and that God gave him such an incredible gift and capacity to teach us, to give us the words of life and to pour into us the instructions, the words we need to know to gain and have eternal life. And to praise him that he did set his face like flint and he was determined to do God's will no matter how much suffering, no matter how dark it was. That he was indeed the only sacrifice sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin and that God did help him in the end by turning the shame of the cross into the magnificent glory of the resurrection. Uh, we could stop there and just praise him for that. But, uh, but Isaiah actually has one more point in his sermon. And so we want to hit that point real quick. Um, he says this. And he turns away from the servant. The first part is the servant speaking. And now Isaiah switches into his own voice. And he gives a challenge to his readers, to us. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, you try to walk by that light of your own fire and by the torches that you have kindled, and this is what you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Um Jesus, uh, Isaiah gives us basically three, three points of how we can apply Jesus' life as an example. And his point in this whole little sermon is this, and I love this. Uh, Jesus was an example to Israel 600 years before he was born. Right? As Isaiah explained what Jesus would be like. And he said, this is what Jesus is like. This is the person that's going to come that you need to know, and you need to be like him. And this is how you can be like him. This is how you can copy and follow his example. First of all, he says you need to be a student like Jesus was. You need to be tuned in to hear the voice of God in the same way that Jesus was. Verse 10, he says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Uh, Two things there about being a good student. First, uh, uh, you need to fear God. You need to fear God. Um, what does it mean to fear God? Well, it means literally, and it means to take God and his word seriously. Right? Seriously. Right? Uh, how many of you read all the warning lab- labels when you, when you get some new appliance? Right? You open the package, the very first thing is this thing that says danger, warning, right? Big exclamation points, big bright letters. Watch out, right? And it, and it lists this very long description of warnings. Does anybody read those? No, right? Because I'm pretty sure my toaster's not going to kill me, right? Because I'm not going to use it in the bathtub, for one, right? And I'm not going to stick my tongue in there either, right? right? So, uh, you know, we don't fear, we don't really take seriously those warnings. Sadly, too many people approach Scripture with the same nonchalant indifference, right? It's full of warnings, right? And, and one of the great cancers of the church today and of, the, of, of modern thinking is this idea that says if God is love, then he uh, must be a being we should never have to fear, right? And that gets taught a lot. You don't have to fear God because God's a God of love, and you don't ever have to fear something if love is involved. Okay, clearly these people have never fallen in love, 
right? They've never fallen head over here, uh, over heels for a girl, right? And and just been consumed with this beautiful angel that you just must know and must have a relationship with. And so you want to ask her out on a date, right? And you're pretty sure she likes you. You, you, you kind of read some signs that you think she might even really like you. And there's a chance she could someday love you, right? Love is at stake here, right? Are you calm about this? No, you're terrified, right? You're panicked. You're freaked out. And you've you got to ask her out for a date. And everything in you, it's like, you know, death itself is not as terrifying as this, right? right? So don't tell me that love is not fearful, right? Because the fear is she could say no. She could say, you're a loser. Why would I go out with you, right? And so, uh, and, but that's the adventure of love, right? That's the adventure of love. Um, and that's true of a lot of things in life, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you never fell in love, or maybe that's not a good analogy for you. Maybe, like for me, rock climbing is another good one. I love rock climbing. I love getting up, uh, and I love standing. My wife drives her crazy. I love standing at the edge of a cliff with like a thousand feet straight below. It's just such a rush, right? Um, is there fear in that? Oh, huge fear. That's what makes it fun, right? You're just standing inches away from like death, right? And she's just right there. I'm just challenging it, just like, right? And my wife's ready to push me over, right? <laughs> Don't do that, right? It's the, it's the adventure, right, of life. Same thing is true with God. Because he's loving does not take away the fact that he is to be feared. Right? There's something awesome and terrible in his love. Right? There, there is fire and judgment in it. Um, so we are to fear God. We are to take seriously all his word and all his warnings. Right? Um, but also, he says, and... and, and we fear God and they obey the voice of his servant. Right? We're to be just like Jesus. Jesus took God's word seriously and he understood God's purpose and will for him because he paid attention to scripture. And Jesus has now, uh, with great capacity, given us sustaining words to encourage the weary. Right? So who are we to not pay attention to those words? Clearly, if we are to make it through the darkness, we need to be attentive to his word. Because it is the strength, it is what will give us the capacity and faith to do what Jesus did. To set our face like flint and follow God's God's purpose and will. Um, And this comes in two ways, just like it did for Jesus. The first way it comes is that through God's word we have a clear understanding and knowledge of his will. Uh, we want to know God's will. And, uh, you know, God's not going to send you an email, right? Uh, he's probably not going, going to make it that easy to discern what he wants for you apart from Scripture. Now, of course, he can, and sometimes he gives us visions, but it gets confirmed and it gets laid out primarily through Scripture. God speaks to us primarily through his word, um, in my, in my own life, one of the most dramatic times this happened in my life when God was calling me to be a pastor, and I did not want to be a pastor. I said, God, I'll serve you anything, but just don't make me preach. Don't make me be a pastor. Right? And um, I struggled with that. And I, I resisted God for uh, over a year. And, 
just feeling the pressure as God was squeezing. And every time I would read scripture, God was trying to speak those words to me. And I, uh, and he was trying to open my ears, but I put my hand over my ears to make sure I didn't hear, right? Uh, he can open our ears, but we can close them. But I remember one day reading scripture, <clears throat> and I was reading the parable of the talents. And I just remember thinking, yeah, God, that's what I want. I just want to use the talents you've given me to your glory. And, I mean, God smacked me upside the head like a thunderbolt, right? I mean, like literally, well, not literally, but it felt almost like he just went, hello, I'm trying to use your talents. You won't let me, right? I'm telling you, the place where I want to use your talents to the most benefit is to be a pastor, right? And it's like God just spoke those words to me, and it's like, oh, (laughs) oh, right? And I was just broken in that moment that, God, that's what I want. I want to use my life and whatever you've given me to your glory, and you know what's best, right? You know what's best. God wants to speak his word to us like that, I think, every day. Jesus said he woke up morning by morning. God woke him up to speak new truth to him, right? Morning by morning, God wants to speak his word to you. And it's more than just reading the Bible or studying. It's really learning how to hear God's voice, how to hear him speak to us through his word. Uh, but this can be, this, this is not all happy because just like Jesus, sometimes it may become apparent and clear that God's will and purpose for us includes darkness, includes hard times and suffering. And so the second reason we need to be in the word and letting Jesus teach us is so that, just like Jesus, we would be continually reminded that God will help us. That God will help us. That he will be there for us. And that even though life is hard, God will be a presence for us. Um, That he's not going to abandon us. That his love for us is so great uh, that he will hold us each step of the way. I don't know about you, but I need that reminder continually. And no matter how many times God has proven himself faithful in the past, right? When, the, when, when I find myself in the dark for the 900th time, what do I do? First thing I think is, God's abandoned me. I'm not going to make it, right? Just like Israel, no matter how many miracles there were in the past, I'm convinced God's not going to be able to do it this time, right? Because I'm so stubborn and slow. We need constant reminders. God will help us. Last thing. Um, Two points, but one verse. Let Let me read this. He says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So we study God's word, and as we do, we must learn to trust him. We've got to learn to turn it all over to him. Uh, When you're in the dark, what do you want more than anything else? Well, what we want more than anything else is light. But that's the wrong question. What do you need more than anything else? Well, what you really need more than light is you need a guide. You need somebody who's been there and who knows the terrain and can guide you through the darkness. Uh, back a long time ago when I was much younger, I uh, loved climbing mountains, and I was climbing uh, a peak, Mount Yale in Colorado, a really high mountain. had climbed one in the morning. We're trying to get a second peak in, and we got within about 400 meters of the summit, and it got dark. And I mean it got like pitch black dark. 
you could not see your hand in front of your face. And we're up on this high mountain, and every turn around us is just steep drop-offs and cliffs. As much as I like standing on the edge of cliffs, doing it in the dark is not fun, right? And it was one of the saddest days of my life. I had to turn around, and I had to go down the mountain without reaching the summit. Total defeat. Just total defeat, right? To this day, that mountain has still defeated me, and I've never gotten back. But I knew that I, I, did, I never climbed it. I, I didn't know the way up. I knew if I kept going, uh, I could very easily just fall off some cliff, and that would be the end of it. I had to turn around and go back down. What I needed that, at that moment was somebody who knew the mountains so well that they could guide me through the dangers right in the dark. And I didn't have that. When you are in the midst of darkness, you do not need light. You need God. You need a guide who will walk you through the darkness. Right? And, uh, but we want light, right? So, so notice what Isaiah says. He says, Behold, all you who kindle your own fire, you who equip yourselves with burning torches, you who grab your flashlights, right? Uh, go ahead, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. Go ahead, use your flashlight. But this is what you will get from my hand. You shall lay down in torment. Okay? God is not impressed with our flashlights, I'm guessing. Right? Pretty strong words. Uh, do not light a fire for yourself. Do not seek the comfort and security that a light, a torch, a fire will give you. Right? That's what we want. We want to build a campfire. But here's the problem with that kind of light it gives you a very false sense of security because it lights up a few feet around you. Uh, I used to do outdoor ed classes and uh, would do night hikes with a bunch of sixth graders, <laughs> great adventure, go out in the dark in the forest. And, of course, I learned really quickly that I had to ban all flashlights, right? Because the kids didn't like the dark and they wanted their flashlight. But this is what it meant. They would have, you know, 100 flashlights going all through the woods and uh, 50 of them would be blazing in my eyes, right? So I couldn't see a thing. I could not see a thing because they were constantly blinding me with their flashlights, right? So I had to ban the flashlights. And I said, hey, look, here's the deal. If you put, you know, don't bring your flashlights and give yourself a few minutes, your eyes will adjust. And it's amazing what you can even see in the dark. And they would follow me and we'd have a lot of fun and we'd get to see cool things, right? And that's the problem with flashlights is it lights up right where you are, but it actually blinds you to the darkness around you, right? So here's the picture. You got your little torch. You feel secure because you're lit up for about a six-foot parameter. And you don't see this ginormous grizzly bear that's about to eat you, right? Because you're blind to the rest of the darkness. And that, that's the picture Isaiah is giving here. He says, yeah, you create for yourself your own security and your own light. But you become then uh, a false security. You have a false security that you're okay. And you're blind to the great danger that's right there, right, that is about to devour you. You build a great campfire and you lay down in peace beside it and the bear comes and devours you. You lie down in torment, right? Um, we long for security and it is so easy for us to create in those dark times our own false hope, right? By applying human wisdom and applying our own solutions by trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in God. 
He says, look, you have got to trust him. You've got to trust in his name. You have got to rely on him. It's dark and it's terrifying, but know that he will guide you through. Um, Otherwise, you will lay down in torment. And that phrase is used as a a description of really lying down in hell. Those who cannot learn to trust God uh, will find themselves on the path to destruction. Um, So here's what we do with this. We need to be in the Word. Uh, We need to be developing the skill of hearing God speak, asking God to open your ears to show you his will. And then we need to trust what he tells us, right? We need to believe in what he tells us. When he says, I love you and I will watch over you, I will protect you, I will accomplish my purpose in your life, you've got to believe it. And then, like Jesus, set your face like flint, determined to do his will. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.